Good morning. Thank you for that lovely prayer, Jim. And uh, thank you, Harry. Everybody take a good look at Harry. Every time he walks by, I feel like I should salute. Don't you? <laughs> With that shirt on, you know. Uh, oh, <laughs> oh, I didn't know that was a rule. <laughs> uh, Harry, I've always wanted to speak in substitute for somebody on a holiday weekend. Uh, many of you know Mark Young. Uh, who many when he lived here and he's president of Denver Seminary now but he used to be here and he substituted quite often for Chuck years ago and he would always stand up on these summer weekends and he'd say welcome to the congregation of those who don't own lake houses (laughs) (laughs) and I just always wanted to say that so all right uh, I am from the Grace Gathering class uh, is where we attend and uh, we've been studying with Dr. Hannah Exodus and uh, the story of how Moses led the people uh, out of Egypt. And I was um, reminded of a friend of mine who lives in Atlanta, Georgia. His name is his name is Larry. And uh, Larry's, um, he and I were single guys together in Denver years and years ago. And uh, he now lives, he's got grandchildren, he's got four sons. And he, he, was, he said he had one of his grandsons in the car, or they were coming back from church one Sunday. I, I forget what it was. And he, and he asked his grandson, he, he to see how well his sons were doing and how well the church was doing. So he, he asked his grandson, how is, uh, what did you learn in Sunday school class today? And the young boy said, oh, six, eight years old, said, oh, we learned all about how Moses led the people out of Egypt. And Larry says, well, tell us that story. He said, oh, it's really cool, Grandpa. He said, Moses got the word that they could take the people. So he got all the hummy, humphrey, Humvees and the Jeeps and the, the four-by-four-ton trucks, and he loaded all the people, and they drove off across the desert. When they got to the Red Sea, they didn't know what to do, so they called up the pontoon bridges, and they brought these trucks, and they built this pontoon bridge right across, and the people started going across. Now, now the, the, they saw some clouds behind them, and so Moses set up some drones to see what was going on, and he saw the Egyptian tanks were coming after them and so got all the people across the pontoon bridge then he set up his a10 war hogs and and they they shot all the all the egyptians on the bridge and the bridge collapsed and all the egyptians floated away (laughs) and larry said well that's a great story is is that how your teacher told it today and he said oh no grandpa the way they told it no one would believe it Uh, we're going to talk about some stories today that the way they're telling them today and the way they told them back in uh, 250 years ago, uh, they wouldn't believe them today because uh, they've changed how we, how we look at history, unfortunately. Uh, so I call this uh, America, America, God shed his grace on thee. We, we have some notes here, and uh, down the left-hand side, I've just given you a timeline of the American Revolution, the War of Independence. Uh, it doesn't have all the events in it, but the red events highlighted in red are kind of some of the stories I'll be touching on today, just to get, because I don't do them quite in chronological order, so that'll kind of give you a little um, understanding of where we are in the in the revolution. Um, remember that when I was here last time, or I would hope you, maybe if you weren't, you can look at the video, we talked about what did the founders believe. And the founders had what they called first principles. One of those, of course, was that rights are granted by God, that, that government is by the consent of the governed, uh, and they had a rule of law. So in other words, 
there was no king. There was a, for the first time in history that a people decided we will be the king, we will be the collective rulers, and we will choose who will lead us. And we will change those rulers from time to time, and we'll follow a set rule of laws so that you can't arbitrarily change the laws when somebody new comes in. You have to follow the set of laws. Um, they, they believed there were two concepts they talked a lot about. One was virtue. Today we would say more character or integrity. We don't use the virtue a lot, but one of the words they used commonly, that in order for this system to work, you had to have men of virtue or men of character or men and women, they meant, of course, uh, because you, you are putting somebody in place to make some decisions on your behalf. So you better understand their character. They better have a good character. In fact, the original 13 states, I, I told you, had um, each one of the original 13 states had a law or had a line in its their constitutions that said in order to hold a public office in this state, you had to be a member in good standing of a local church. They didn't care what church. Just had to be a member in good standing of a church because church was where we taught morality. Church was where we taught right and wrong, the concept of right and wrong. Uh, so th- those were things they focused on. We, we focused last time, I think, on five founders. George Washington, I told you he was a man of prayer. Thomas Jefferson, the man of intellect or reason. Uh, ben Franken, Mr. Common Sense. Uh, John Adams, the, the family values. And uh, Patrick Henry, a man of passion. And so we kind of went through some of those. Uh, and then I think I probably quoted with quoted Ronald Reagan and uh, saying that we are one nation under God. Uh, if we forget that, we're going to be a nation gone under, uh, and we don't want that. So we start out looking at Pikes Peak. Many of you have been to Pikes Peak in Colorado. You know, at the foot of Pikes Peak, there in the Garden of the uh, the Garden of what's it called? Garden of the Gods. Yeah, uh, is where the Navigators Ministry is. If you've ever been there. Um, the second largest peak of the 54 or 14,000 footers in Colorado. And a, and a song was written, or was inspired on the top of that, and it's the song we know as America. America, America, God shed his grace on thee. It was written by Catherine Lee Bates. Now, Catherine Bates was a uh, school teacher at a school today that's noted to be uh, rather liberal. Uh, she was the daughter of a, con- a congregational minister. Uh, she held later in her life in, in, in the, into the uh, uh, 1900s, she she was well known in literary circles and and hung around with people like Robert Frost, other other great writers of the time. Uh, she decided. Let me see if I can. There it is. Uh, but she Wellesley College today, of course, is pretty liberal. Uh, but she taught English literature and was really good at that. And she was a poet of her of her own. So she's in Colorado in 1893, and they take a tour to the top. Now, some of you have taken the train up. Some of you have driven up. Uh, I've walked halfway up. I didn't make, and then I rode the train up and walked all the way down. Okay, uh, but but in those days you had to take the the horse horse carts like the like the one you see there. And uh, when she got to the top there, she looked out over it, and it is quite amazing. Whatever time of day you're there, you feel like you can see to the seashore. You just can see forever on a clear day, and it's usually clear in Colorado. And so she said, all the wonder of America was displayed there. So she wrote this poem. And basically, she said, America, God shed his grace on thee uh, from sea to shining sea. 
the founders believed in providence. The founders believed that a lot of things happened to them, that things in the War of Independence, things in the framing of the Constitution would not have happened had it not been for the presence of the Almighty. They called the Almighty a number of different things. Uh, they, they called the, the, I told you the story in the Constitution, Constitutional Convention where Ben Franklin said God governs in the affairs of men. In fact, for two weeks, they couldn't get anything decided in the Constitutional Convention in 1787 until Ben Franklin, the deist at best, stood up and said, do you not remember how we got on our knees in this very room during the days of the war and prayed every day for wisdom? Have we forgotten that? Uh, and so it's a very famous speech. The, see, the founders called God the creator, the supreme judge, nature's God. Uh, they, they attested things to the hand of providence, uh, the divine protection, favors that he has bestowed. These words keep coming up in the writings. It was 250 years ago. They, we can't hold them accountable then for the way we practice things today. Uh, so we can't also expect them to describe things back then as we would describe it today. We would be, much, those of us in this room certainly would be much more direct in explaining God today maybe than they were, but this is what they lived. And by the way, 39 of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence had the equivalent of a seminary degree because the schools they went to, William, William and Mary and, and uh, Harvard and Princeton, were all religious education schools. So it was almost assumed. They, they, they didn't really have to explain it because we all knew it in those days. And so this is how they said it. What I want to do is tell you a couple of the stories that you'll probably have trouble uh, believing, maybe, or some of your friends will if you share them with them. Uh, you, you know these words appeared in the Declaration of Independence. Uh, also, the, the principles appear in the Constitution. The Creator is not ever mentioned in the Constitution, but the principles uh, that, that they followed are throughout the Constitution. So I'm just going to tell you, half a dozen stories uh, of things that you may or may not know. There's a wonderful book. There's a gentleman out in Alito, which is halfway between Weatherford and Fort Worth, named um, David Barton. And one of the first books he wrote, interesting story, David Barton, for those of you who know him, started out as a school teacher. His father had a private school there in Alito. He was a school teacher. Then he got involved in the local school district. Then he got involved in the State Board of Education. In the, 90, in, in the 2000 year 2000, he was the uh, vice chair of the Republican Party of Texas for about eight years, and he still travels around the country teaching people about God in the Constitution. He does tours in the, in the U.S. Capitol of all the images of God, all of the quotes of God about God in there. Well, he wrote a book called The Bulletproof George Washington, which is a great little book. Um, we, it starts in the French-Indian War. This is when George Washington became a rock star. He was like a nobody. Okay, He was a wealthy person. He was the second son. He didn't inherit his father's major farms. He inherited a place called Ferry Farm. But then his brother Lawrence was down in the, uh, uh, in the islands and died of tuberculosis, I believe. And George Washington all of a sudden got everything and became one of the richest men in the colonies. He was a fabulous horseman. Uh, he was six foot five or six foot six. He was probably one of the best horsemen in, in the colonies and probably one of the richest people in the colonies. Um, but back in before his brother died in the 1750s, the, the French, so what this map shows you, I don't know if this, I'm going to see if this little, I've got this little gizmo, I don't know if this gizmo is going to work or not. It is not. 
Okay. Uh, it, it's, uh, when there's only one screen, it puts a little dot that shows you where it is. If you look at the, the, the orange is the English colonies. The green, remember, Canada was a French possession. And and Canada, the French were going behind the Alleghenies and the Berkshire Mountains there, and they were uh, exploring Joliet, Marquette in, in Chicago, and, and Joliet and down to St. Louis. The French were, were taking all that land and settling it, whereas the colonists thought they had all the land going up to the Mississippi River. So what happens is there's this disputed territory, and, and the British are building forts over the mountains and they built a fort at Fort Pitt, which today is called Pittsburgh. And so uh, the governor, Washington, is a captain uh, in the um, militia for Virginia. The governor, Dinwiddie, sends him over to that area and tells the French settlers, move out. This is uh, English area. And they said no. So then he goes back, and the, the governor then sends him with some troops and says it, to uh, support and, and build out Fort Pitt, support it, uh, expand it. But when he gets to Fort Pitt, it's already um, occupied by the French. So he builds a little fort called Fort Necessity. That's that little circle there, Fort Necessity, uh, 40 miles away with his troops. And there's a, a French patrol coming by. This is in 1755. There's a French patrol coming by, and he ambushes it and happens to kill a marquis or somebody high in the French uh, army. And they believe this is the start of the French and Indian War. George Washington actually started what's called the Seven Years' War in Europe. In America, it's called the French and Indian War, where, where Britain and France went to went to battle over the colonies, but it was a world war because they fought all over. Uh, so Washington, the, the, the French troops come and they they make him surrender Fort Necessity, and he's paroled and sent back to Virginia in disgrace, theoretically. Except all the all the colonists and in England, they think he's fabulous because he stood up to the French. In fact, uh, he he wrote something. He said, "I have heard the whine of bullets, and somehow I find it comforting." Okay, so he goes. General Braddock now in 1756, 1755, 1756 goes back to conquer Fort Duquesne and Washington because they didn't make him they didn't make him give him a commission in the British Army he had dropped out of the militia but the but the, someone came to him and said no nah, it's a good idea if you go on this expedition so he goes as an aide a militia aide to General Braddock and the and the British start marching um, up Wilderness Road and of course as the British did you can see here they're marching with uh, the photographers weren't so good in those days so we have to deal with what they had um, <laughs> they, they march just all there together, all jump, bunched up, uh, and their goal was to capture Fort Duquesne and, and chase the French out. Well, of course, the uh, the Indians are working with, all the native tribes are working with the uh, French, and they're watching this happen, and, and the Manan, Manangahela River they attack. They ambush and they attack. Uh, they've learned that you can shoot the officers. So all the officers start falling. And in fact, uh, General Braddock gets shot and falls down. And the only officer left standing was one lieutenant and then there was George Washington. Uh, he, the, One of the other uh, officers said, I expect at any moment to see him fall. Nothing but the, su the superintending care of Providence could have saved him. 
Uh, he writes to his brother after this is all over, by all the powerful dispensations of providence have beyond, protected me beyond human probability or expectation. I had four bullets through my coat. Two horses shot out from under me, yet I escaped unhurt. So so it, it was just somewhat miraculous. What he does is rally the troops. He organizes the retreat. He saves most of them. He rescues General Braddock, who is mortally wounded, dies four days later. But he saves a good part of the British Army because all the other officers are wounded. Uh, quite a few years later, before the American Revolution started, but quite a few years later, um, it says 15 here, uh, Washington meets one of the Indian chiefs that was at the battle. He's, he's out inspecting some lands, in the, in the, in, and he meets one of these chiefs, and the chief tells them this story. He said, when I first beheld this man, Washington, I called to my young men and said, See the tall and daring warrior. He's not the Redcoats. He's he, Because the militia knew how to fight behind trees. The Redcoats fought out in the open. The militia were local people. But they kept the militia back guarding the, 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 work, the, the, the supply train. So they didn't really get to fight in this battle. But Washington's out there telling people what to do. So the chief says, shoot him. Get that guy. Everybody... Get that guy. If we get that guy, we win the battle. Since our rifles were leveled, rifles which but for him knew not how to miss. We could hit everything else, we couldn't hit him. A power mightier far than we shielded him from harm. He cannot die in battle. The great spirit protects that man and guides his destiny. It's not the only time Washington avoided the bullets. After he um, crossed the Delaware and uh, uh, evaded uh, Cornwallis' troops and went up and then attacked Princeton, uh, one of his generals fell and his troops started retreating. So Washington drives, uh, rides his horse out into the battle and rallies his troops. And he's w- within easy shooting distance of all of the British. Uh, his, um, I, think, I think I have it written there. It's not on, it's not on the screen. His, uh, one of his aides says, I just kind of closed my eyes. Because when, when it was all done, I said, he's got to be on the ground. But there was all kinds of uh, gunfire around him. Washington rides out unscathed. Again, a couple bullet holes in his cape or in his hat. Okay? Uh, at the Battle of Brandywine, when they're trying to protect Philadelphia, uh, which they lost, uh, Washington goes out with just one aide to look for a way to forge one of the little creeks that were there, forge one of the little creeks. So he's out just with one other person. And there was a sharpshooter, a guy named uh, Major Ferguson. Now, Ferguson invented a new rifle. He was one of the best shots in the British Army. He had four sharpshooters hiding in the trees in ambush, waiting for some Americans to come by. Washington rides up, and and Ferguson recognizes, well, he's an officer, didn't know who it was. He said, rather than shoot him, let's capture him. So he yells out to surrender. And Washington just kind of looks at him, turns around, rides away. I don't think he gave him a gesture, but you could imagine what he might have said. Okay, <laughs> uh, Ferguson later says, later says, I could have lodged a half a dozen balls in his back as he was leaving. I could have shot him in the back. He said, but that's not what we do. We don't operate that way. To someone who was acquitting himself so well as an officer, I couldn't shoot the man in the back. Later on, he finds out it's George Washington. Okay. Uh, so Washington had this protection over him they say he certainly felt it other people felt it even the native americans said something protects that guy he was a special man okay providence why not give him credit right why not uh, the Battle of Dorchester Heights, uh, Boston, when Washington, we're going back in time now again, after Lexington and Concord, uh, Boston is surrounded, 
uh, by the American colonists, but they're not organized at all. The British are there right on the little, uh, what was, at that time was a little peninsula of Boston. Everything to the left of that island now is what's called the Back Bay in Boston. It's filled in if you've ever lived there. But but Boston at that time was like that. The British, the, the Americans have got the British surrounded. They chased them out of Lexington and Concord. They surround the town. Uh, that was April 19th. On June 17th, the Americans say we should take the high ground, so let's grab Bunker Hill here, Breed's Hill and Bunker Hill. The British attack Bunker Hill uh, because of the, after three waves of attacks, uh, they are devastated. They gain the hill only because the Americans run out of ammunition, but the, the, the generals are hesitant from then on throughout the war to attack fixed positions uh, because the American fire was so devastating. But the British chase them off of Bunker Hill. On June 19th, two days later down in Philadelphia, it took 10 days to get news from Boston to Philadelphia, so they didn't even know. They only knew about Lexington and Concord. Washington is appointed commander-in-chief, and he's sent to Boston. He doesn't really get there until July. He arrives on July 2nd, and what he does is he starts going around and looking at the fortifications, looking at the troops, because they're all just uh, different uh, units, different states, no, no control. He's trying to form an army. But he looks around and he says, there's some high ground, Dorchester Heights, down below there that has not been taken. How can we fortify this? How can we get rid of the British? You can't attack because there's only that one little place to attack. They didn't have the boats. Harbor was full of boats. They had no cannon. They had two or three cannon. Uh, but they wanted to attack Put to do something on Dorchester Heights there, but there was no way they could do it because they couldn't. They had no cannon to put up there. Along comes a guy named Henry Knox, 24 years old. He was a bookseller. He owned the old London bookstore in Boston, and uh, Henry was described at best as a portly man. Uh, he was not athletic by any means. He didn't look military. He has this bookstore, and while uh, be, before Lexington and Concord, he he has all the latest periodicals from London. So all the British soldiers and the officers especially are coming to his bookstore and they're talking. And he overhears them talking. Then he goes and sees his friend Paul Revere, goes and sees his friend Dr. Joseph Warren, tells him what the British are planning. So he's basically a spy at the bookstore. He's also reading all the books on artillery. He becomes he he watches out on the Boston Green the, the British training use, using their cannon and he reads books on artillery and becomes an artillery self-taught person. Okay. Uh, so he's a bookseller. Uh, that's a little uh, uh, actual notice of his uh, the opening of his bookstore. Uh, he, he has a plan. He, he when the Boston when the Boston gets taken by the British and they close it down. He and his wife flee. His wife's parents are Tories. Uh, they leave later and go to, to, to London, and she never sees them again. Uh, but he, Henry Knox has a plan. He, they make him a captain or something in the uh, uh, artillery for their two cannon. And, and, but Henry Knox says, you know, we took Fort Ticonderoga recently. Uh, Ethan Allen and Benedict Arnold took Ticonderoga. There's 54 cannon up there in Ticonderoga. It's only about 230, 240 miles away. We could go up there and bring the cannon down here. Now, he has this idea in November. Okay? Uh, there's all these cannon there, 225 miles away. He says all we need is it's going to be winter soon. It'll be snowy. We can have ox carts, we can have ox carts pull the cannon uh, all over the mountains. Piece of cake, right? It's 225 miles. He thinks he can do it in about 15 days. Okay, so Washington says, "Sounds crazy to me." Every nobody else thought it was going to say, "Give the guy a thousand dollars, go do it." 
So Knox and his brother go, and they 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 get a letter of introduction to the Americans at in Albany, and they he gets some troops. Um, now they have it's two hundred twenty five miles. They have to go over the Berkshire Mountains in the snow. They have to cross the Hudson River three times. Okay, uh, it took fifty six days, but they got the cannon there. Okay, uh, that's a whole other story in itself of how they did that. Uh, but they get the cannon there. And uh, they secretly install it. They arrive on February 27th. They put a few around on Bunker Hill and other places or near there to cause a diversion. And then they're secretly on the nights of March 2nd and 3rd putting it up on, onto uh, uh, Dorchester Heights. They have these, you see that basket there? They have a basket and what they did, rather than digging up on Dorchester Heights where people could hear them behind the mountain or the hilltop, they're digging and then they just put these baskets full of dirt up and so they basically build an enclosure to protect the cannon without making any noise. Uh, They fire the first shot on March 4th. Uh, They fire it over and they hit a ship and uh, the uh, General, uh, General Gage and General Howe decide we can't protect Boston anymore. They're on the heights. They say, well, wait, maybe, we can, maybe we can get them off the heights. So the, so the British there are in Boston, they, they send troops to climb Dorchester Heights from, from there. They send them on boats, and, and an unusual storm prevents landing. They have a crazy storm that they never have at that time of year, pushes the boats away. They can't even land on Dorchester Heights. So then Howe says, okay, we're going to have to abandon. And so on March 17th, they abandon uh, Boston. March 17th, of course, in Boston is a big day because it's St. Patrick's Day. But to this day, they still call it evacuation day, the day the British left Boston. Okay, Because of a storm on Dorchester Heights and the ability to get 54 cannon over the Berkshire Mountains in the middle, middle of winter. Okay? Someone was helping them. Uh, and so that's Henry Knox. It's an act of providence. The, the army is saved. Boston is saved through, we believe, an act of providence. And that's how they said it. They had no other explanation. Yeah. August 29, 1776, once, once the British are out of Boston, Washington moves his army down to New York City because he figures that's the next city we have to defend. That's where the British are going next. So he moves his army down to New York City. Uh, but what happens is 9,000 troops get trapped on Long Island. Here's the story. Uh, in defense, he's trying to figure out where are the British going to go. So the, the island of Manhattan uh, is actually where it says New York Bay there. The arrow uh, flipped on me. Uh, so where, where it says New York Bay is what's really the island of Manhattan. Uh, and they, they build defenses along Manhattan and across the, uh, the, the, the East River there and then all the way across Long Island because they have no idea where the British are going to go. The British start arriving that summer. And and um, in the midst of their arrival, Washington gets news on July 9th that we've signed the Declaration of Independence. He's been waiting for this for a year. He didn't sign it, of course, because he's been fighting the war. So he reads, he says, all his troops hear the Declaration of Independence. He reads it to his officers. They all read it in the field to their troops. Okay. Uh, that night, the people in New York are celebrating. There's a statue of King George that's next to the Customs House, right uh, uh, down where we would call Battery Park today, down there in the, south, the southern tip, where you can see the Statue of Liberty from now. Uh, there's a King George statue, and the colonists in the party and the revelry uh, tear it down, and then they melt it down, and they turn it into bullets. George Washington writes in his diary, just as an aside, he said, I wish they hadn't done that. He said, I would prefer that we deal with these things lawfully and not by mob action. Okay. Um, 
anyway, the, the, they're protecting the island of Manhattan. Uh, 300 ships and 25,000 troops arrive, and they occupy Staten Island. And now we're waiting and we're waiting. What are they going to do? What are they going to do? Uh, British start landing on Long Island on August 2nd. And so they start attacking up the hill. It's called the Battle of Brooklyn. But again, they're facing fortifications. And General Howe is very cautious because of the bad uh, attacks he had on Bunker Hill. Uh, But what they they are able to do is outflank the Continentals. A a local Tory shows them a path through some hills around back, and the Continentals get outflanked, and they're all departing. And once again, um, Washington is out there rallying his troops to stay. So night comes, and and for some reason, Howe doesn't push the attack. The Army's Army's there. Uh, An unseasonable fog shows up. Uh, I'll tell you about that in a second. Washington puts out the call for boats. Well, one of his colonels is John Glover from Marblehead. Marblehead is about 30, 40 miles from Boston. Uh, basically, fisherman. John Glover was started as a fisherman, had a couple ships, became a merchant. So he builds a whole regiment of fishermen, but they're land-based soldiers now. But they're there in New York, and he says, hey, no problem, we'll just get some boats and row you across. Okay. Um, that night, an unseasonable fog comes up over the entire East River. Uh, so with British troops patrolling, they're able to get 9,000 9, soldiers. You know, you've heard the story, Washington leaves the fires burning, He's the and, and they, they keep trying to make it look like there's a lot of soldiers still up on the uh, uh, battlements, but they all sneak across the river, and they're safe on Manhattan Island Okay, due to an unseasonable fog. Our God controls the weather. All right. So how about the miracle at Valley Forge? After New York, they get chased out of Manhattan. By the way, John Glover and his Marblehead fishermen saved the the American army two more times. They save him in the Battle of Harlem. They managed to hold back a a British flanking movement. And then they're the the unit that also rose him across the Delaware for the Battle of Trenton. But after Trenton and after getting chased out of Philadelphia, we now are in 1777, and the the American army has been being chased now for a year and a half and losing just about every battle, uh, winning a few little skirmishes here and there. Uh, More and more desertions. They they have no supplies. The British occupy Philadelphia, chase the Continental Congress out. They flee to York, Pennsylvania. Uh, And meanwhile... Washington finds this little valley, Valley Forge, a little west of Philadelphia, and they decide to winter there. Of course, there aren't any cabins there. They have to build them. Some of you have traveled to Valley Forge. They they have replicas of all the cabins now. But it was a cold, cold winter. There were no supplies. Uh, it, they needed tons and tons of uh, foodstuffs every day to stay alive, and they couldn't they couldn't get them from the local communities. Everybody was was out of out of everything. Uh, you think it's bad being out of one item. They had nothing, um, so they're they're boiling shoe leather, and they're eating a soup. They can't chew. They chew the shoe leather. It's just they they do manage to build these cabins, which will at least keep them warm. And they had specifications. And there's you can you can tour those when you go there. They're, they're there. Now, there's an annual shad migration that takes place in the spring of every year. So they go in in December, but this annual shad migration, 
the shad come from Nova Scotia in warmer weather, and they come down, and they go up all these rivers. They go up the Connecticut River, the Hudson River, the Delaware River, the Susquehanna River in the spring, and they spawn just as the salmon spawn up the uh, rivers in Washington and and Oregon. Uh, But it happens at a certain time late in spring when the water gets warm enough. For some reason, this year, in 1778, in the end of the winter of 1778, there is a very warm current only outside the Susquehanna River. So all these other rivers are still cold, but there in the Susquehanna River, where the Philadelphia, the bay is there, uh, get this, for some reason there's a warm current there, the water is very warm. All the shed that would normally go up four rivers go up one river. And guess where they end up? Valley Forge. <laughs> Because the Susquehanna River goes right there, it's shallow, it's knee-high in most cases, and the the shad are so thick, you can just literally scoop them up. They're just out there with shovels and rakes and pulling the shad out, and they have food to survive on. Along comes Baron von Steuben uh, from Germany, who really wasn't a baron, uh, but he used that name. (laughs) But he knew military drill, and so he starts organizing. As spring comes, he's organizing the troops, and he uh, teaches them battle. And from then on, we start winning. uh, When they left Valley Forge in 1778 in that summer, we start winning some battles uh, from, from that. Okay. So that's the provenance. That's the things that God protected us. Interesting that in your praise today, and which happens probably every Sunday, is that several people talked about providential things that happened. Uh, the, the boy on the bicycle. The, that, that's providence. How many times has that happened to you in your life? Huh? Have you kept track? Uh, uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways... Acknowledge him in all your ways. When people ask you, what are you doing in Dallas? Or why did you do that? What's your answer? I thought it was a good idea to move to Dallas. Or God brought me here. Look at all the events in your life. Uh, Another friend of mine in in Atlanta, uh, who I knew back in the 70s, uh, bought a nice house in a nice neighborhood. You don't have to have a nice house in a nice neighborhood. You just happen to have it with a little creek around the back and a little hillside. And he had three little children under the age of 10. And, and he started a thing, because you know how when Abraham was, going, was, was traveling, whenever something happened, he built an altar, right? So, so my friend starts building an altar out back. When, when Scott broke his arm on the bicycle, they, they took a rock, and they said, Scott recovered from broken arm, put it down. When Becky got sick and then recovered, put it on a rock. Every time something good happened in their family, they started building this pile of rocks down by the creek. Okay, What a great idea. What a great idea. Now, what can you do? Well, we most of us probably have children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. Have you ever thought about leaving a legacy letter? What are all the things that happened in your life that God protected you? Abraham Lincoln, I, I teach business writing, to, to and, I, and I was using a quote earlier this week. Abraham Lincoln said, the amazing invention, writing is the most amazing invention of all time. The ability to communicate in writing. Why? Because we can talk to the past. We can hear what Julius Caesar said. We know we hear what Jesus said in the Bible. Okay? We can communicate currently with people who are far, far away from us. And now we can communicate electronically any place. But we can also communicate with the future. He said that's what makes it so amazing. What we write down now, people will be reading 500,000 years from now. Your great, 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 great grandchildren, who you will never see, 
can still read about your life. And all it takes is a legacy letter where you sit down and you write, here are the major decisions in my life, here's what we did, here's what happened, here's why, here's how it happened. And you can leave lessons for those people who will, they will treasure those. Don't you treasure some things that come from your parents and your grandparents? And imagine how much more we can leave for them. So a little challenge for you this summer. Write a legacy letter. Share it with your children and your grandchildren. Some of you probably have done that already. Keep praying for our leaders. Whether you like them or not, whether you voted for them or not, they need our prayers. They need wisdom. Uh, Get involved. We just had a school election here in Frisco. Some of you live in Frisco. School board election. There are nine members of the Frisco School Board. They all vote in unison, whatever the superintendent tells them to do. In fact, questioned in, in a recent meeting, they, when asked who do they work for, they believe they work for the superintendent. Uh, there were three people running on an anti-woke legislation. You may have seen some of the signs. Two of them got elected because we got, uh, not me, some friends of mine got a lot of people out to vote. Uh, and and so you think is a school board election important absolutely <laughs> because 70 years ago we took god out of our schools we took the 10 commandments out of our schools teaching thou shalt not kill so w- there's no right or wrong being taught in schools today we need and what happens in the Frisco school district or in any school district in this area is going to affect the lives of your children and grandchildren in years to come because we're training up the leaders of the future so take this information and get involved and get involved with people I think I'm probably right about that time but any questions or any comments any I have a little YouTube page. It's called The Untold Stories of American Independence. I'm on Facebook. It's there on Facebook. So I post these things all the time. Uh, today is, I won't be able to remember any of them. Today is a momentous day in history, uh, and I can't remember any of the things that happened today. Uh, but I posted four or five things today of just things that happened in today's history. So um, thank you all for the opportunity to be here. Let's uh, close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for all the things you do in our lives every day. We are certainly grateful that you put us in this country, that you gave us founders who were willing to give their all, to sacrifice their all, the greatest sacrifice, uh, for our freedom and our liberty. Thank you for the veterans uh, throughout the years who have sacrificed uh, to protect those freedoms. And, And thank you for our parents, our teachers who taught us godly things. Uh, We ask now, Lord, that you make us bold, that you let us go forth and pray and act, uh, and that we continue to to foremost give credit to you uh, for all that you do. And whatever happens in this country, we will still trust in your provision and your providence. We'll give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Thanks, Carl. Thank you. Very informative presentation. Thank you very much. Till next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.